scripture t- passage today is found in John chapter 20, <clears throat> verses 1 through 10. If you have a Bible, I would encourage you to turn and read along as I read aloud from the Word of God. <clears throat> John chapter 20, verses 1 through 10. <clears throat> Early on the first day of the week, which, uh, just as a reminder, is Sunday, Early on the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary of Magdala went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. So Peter and the other disciple started for the tomb. Both were running, but the other disciple outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He bent over and looked in at the strips of linen lying there, but did not go in. And Simon Peter, who was behind him, arrived and went into the tomb. He saw the strips of linen lying there, as well as the burial cloth that had been around Jesus' head. The cloth was folded up by itself, separate from the linen. Finally, the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went inside. He saw and believed. They still did not understand from Scripture that Jesus had to, raise, had to rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. <coughs> Let us pray. Dear Lord, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks particularly and especially for this glorious news that is declared in a frightened voice, yet nonetheless declared on this, <coughs> the first Sunday which has meaning for eternity, that the tomb was empty, that the burial cloths were lying in the tomb, but that there was no body of Jesus Christ there. Because of this fact, we have hope for eternity. We ask that you might apply these words and the reality that this means to our hearts, that our lives might be transformed both now and forever. I pray that my words would be faithful and in keeping with your word which is holy and just and true and has the power through the work of your Holy Spirit to transform human lives. We ask these things together in Jesus' name. Amen. As I've been plotting my way through Sir Martin Gilbert's book, History of the 20th Century, Volume 2, 1933 through 1951, I've been mesmerized by the tragedy of World War II and its impact upon the citizens of Europe. It was something that we talked about in the combined class that was in Dulcie's class out here this morning. As the Allies launched their D-Day landing on the beaches of Normandy, they moved steadily across France, liberating one countryside, town, and city after the next until Paris was among those liberated. Until the people of these countryside, town, areas, and cities were certain that their liberators had arrived to stay permanently, it is told in the history books that they fled from the liberators. Whether they were people who parachuted in from planes or people who came in on armored vehicles or infantry, however they came in, The French people fled from them because the Germans, they knew, would kill any who helped or communicated in any way or were even seen with the enemy. 
For when the French people were sure that they were free from the oppressions of the Germans, the joy of the French was unbounded. They were ecstatic. And well, they deserved to be, for they knew from the previous year's occupation just what terrors they had been through, what terrors they had now escaped with the retreat and the defeat of the Nazi army in their area. And it was the same in every occupied area or country, one after the next after the next, through which the German army retreated. Those in those countries, the residents who lived in those countries who survived the last vicious retributions of the Nazis as they retreated, couldn't believe their good fortune to be alive and no longer under German Nazi rule. In recent years, Sandy and I have been reading a number of historical books covering the last two centuries. And the hardships that people suffered during these times have been a source of frequent conversation between us. As we've read and talked about these events and the difficulties, the tragedies that people have suffered, we have marveled at how blessed we are in our country, in our day. We do not know the experience of an occupying army or have that within centuries, two centuries memory. We have a minuscule death rate for infants and in childbearing. We have few general health hazards, few, if any, plagues of any sort. News such as an outbreak of encephalitis, which kills several dozen, is major news in our country. And it's astounding to think throughout the course of history through the hundreds and the thousands, the tens of thousands, the hundreds of thousands of people who have been killed through plagues, that we are in a situation that the death of several dozen would be a source of great and intense study and investigation. <clears throat> we have little or no malnutrition and equally as little suffering from other necessities, from the lack of other necessities for living, such as water or shelter. Few husbands, fathers, brothers, <clears throat> and uncles going off to war are not returning. Truly, we are blessed. <clears throat> Yet with every blessing comes a great and grave disadvantage, which is magnified as we consider the exhilaration of the French or other occupied countries delivered from the enemy during World War II. For in every report of areas delivered from the enemy, the celebrations that occurred were mythical in proportion. The people went wild with joy. They celebrated and celebrated. They embraced their deliverers. They threw flowers. <clears throat> they kissed one another. They had feasts. They acted as though their joy had no limitations and would know no end. Why? <clears throat> because these were people who knew what it was to suffer. They knew real terror. They had experienced random and thoughtless and intense and intentional viciousness firsthand. And now they were free of that. And through the hardships, many of these people, as have countless others through such hardships, had developed character persistence, perseverance, and courage in the face of terrible circumstances and terrible situations and terrible tragedies. And we, having experienced so little of the tragedies <clears throat> possible in life, 
have in many ways not learned the virtues of sacrifice, character, perseverance, and courage, things that come through such grave difficulties. We think stress means having too many things to do in one day, that hardship is being without electricity for half a day, and illness is being in bed for a week. Small wonder that the people of my generation and our culture today are shallow and spend their time thinking of self rather than others, since we have not in our lifetimes experienced the sort of hardships that might shake us to the core and force us to stop thinking about ourselves and our petty, tiny, little problems. In light of this, we turn to Mary the Magdalene, Here was a woman who knew the realities of tragedy and hardship and therefore could understand deliverance and freedom in a way which we could not begin to comprehend. As I was considering this passage in my sermon this morning, this morning getting ready for church and coming to church, I remembered Jesus' words to Simon when he was at Simon's home for dinner. And this Pharisee could not believe that he was allowing a woman of bad reputation to weep over his feet. And Jesus' words were, He who has been forgiven loves little, loves, get it right. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. And so this passage is is so true. And we see Mary the Magdalene, who had been forgiven much, loving much, with an expansive love of Christ. For this Mary of Magdala had experienced horrors of which we only read. She had been possessed by seven demons, as we are told in a a parallel gospel, Mark Chapter 16, verse 9, which says, When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, excuse me, um, it says that Jesus uh, appeared to her, out of whom he had driven seven demons. Mary the Magdalene. As we look at the man in the region near where it appears the area of Magdala was, The man whose name was Legion, because he was inhabited by a legion of demons, we realize the horrors of this demon possession. In Luke 8, 27, I read this. When Jesus stepped ashore, he was met by a demon-possessed man from the town. For a long time, this man had not worn clothes or lived in a house, but had lived in the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell at his feet, shouting at the top of his voice, What do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had commanded the evil spirit to come out of the man. Many times it had seized him, and though he was chained hand and foot and kept under guard, he had broken his chains and had been driven by the demon into solitary places. The life of this man who was called Legion because of possession by a legion of demons, was so miserable it is noteworthy to point out that later in this account, when the townspeople came out to see what had happened, that Jesus cast the demons out of him and they went into a herd of pigs who jumped off the cliff and landed in the water and drowned. When the townspeople came out to see this man whom they only knew by the name Legion, 
They marveled to find this man who had been formerly possessed by a legion of demons sitting quietly, <clears throat> clothed, and in his right mind. How do you think about these things? I hope that all of you fit these three categories. Sitting quietly, clothed, and in your right mind. So it's not such an astonishing thing, is it? To be these three things. And yet as a result of this man's possession by angels of darkness, demons... None of these things fit him prior to Christ casting the demons out of him. Three things that we take for granted. What do we have nightmares about? Those who have nightmares frequently dream of going into situations where they have to give a presentation not dressed properly. That's the stuff of a nightmare, isn't it? (laughs) Yes, indeed. I'm thankful that those dreams don't trouble me. But you think of the number of people who are troubled by those dreams. Or even think of the dreams that you've had where you're in some situation where there's a massive gathering of people and all of a sudden you stand up and start shouting. (laughs) That's not the kind of thing I want to do. Or not having control of your mind. Isn't that one of every individual's fear? To have a mind that is unstable, that is uncontrollable. And yet this was reality for this man. And the further realities of his life are described so explicitly. His life was so miserable that his home was the tombs. People don't live in a cemetery. His life was so miserable that they had chained him hand and foot. They said, we've got to get control of this man. And the demons were so powerful that they had enabled him to have superhuman strength to break the chains. And so finally he had been driven from among the people. Misery compounded. And so as we consider World War II and we consider the bondage and the slavery of the people in occupied territories, the violence, we can say that it has a very real parallel in the life of this man named Legion. And in the same way, we know that Mary the Magdalene experienced much the same as a result of her possession by seven demons. This is a picture of Mary's former life. This is why I point you to the account of the man named Legion. A terrible separation from people because of the torment of the demons within. A terrible violence against herself by those demons who ruled her. An utter and complete lack of control of her life. Her well-being in her mind. And into this utter, maniacal, unearthly, and violent atmosphere of hatred, Christ had come. Now, we don't have explicitly... I don't know that we have an explicit account of Christ casting the demons out of Mary. By his word, he had rid her of this terrible occupation of the enemy, which terrorized her night and day, this occupation which held her life forfeit and kept her from enjoying any of the peace and blessing of family and friends. He gave her health. 
He returned her and restored her to sanity. And most importantly, he gave her purpose. From then on, her purpose was clear, as it is exhibited in our passage. Her purpose was to follow him, to learn from him, to serve him, to be devoted to him, her very real Savior. For he had indeed delivered her from bondage. And when Christ was executed, she was there along with the other women, watching and weeping while he suffered and died. With this Mary's devotion to the Lord, it should come as no surprise that she is among the women as they make their way to the tomb on Sunday morning to prepare the Lord's body better for burial than it had been prepared on Friday night by Joseph and Nicodemus. Out of her devotion to the one who had freed her from slavery to the devil and his demons, she was giving her best to him by this work in preparation of his dead body, which she and the others expected to find lying in the tomb as it had been laid there two nights before. But to her great distress, she found an empty tomb instead of a dead body. She immediately came to a conclusion as to what had happened, telling Peter and John, The one Jesus loved, John is the one Jesus loved, who's referred to here, saying to them, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they have put him. Now, one of the interesting historical notes with regard to this account is that we learn in the other Gospels that, that the religious leaders paid the guards who are watching over that tomb with the Roman governor's seal on it to see that nobody meddled with it, when they were struck down to the ground and insensible, as Jesus rose from that tomb, the angels came and rolled back the stone, they were told to say that the disciples stole his body. Now, based upon John's account of what he and Peter did when they heard that the body was gone, it clearly is not the case that the disciples stole the body. They were astounded. They were horrified. Mary was the same. And it's hard to imagine men such as Peter and John, whose very lives were threatened at this point as a result of the ascendancy, the power of the religious leaders who had succeeded in having Christ crucified. It's very difficult to imagine that they would gain the courage to undertake to go through the soldiers in the Roman governor's seal in order to remove his body. In their haste to see what Mary had just told them and what perhaps the other women returned and soon affirmed, Peter and John had a foot race to the tomb, stretching to reach the tomb in great haste. John beat Peter to the tomb, and when he arrived, he looked inside but did not go in immediately. Peter went in immediately, and John followed shortly after. Both of them saw for themselves the strips of linen lying there and the burial cloth for the head of Jesus folded separately. We are told in our passage that all known of the disciples or followers of Christ had yet seen him as he had risen from the dead. John, seeing these signs, the empty tomb, the cloth laid there, the head cloth folded separately, believe. What did he believe? He believed in the risen Savior. None of the disciples had yet understood what they would soon be taught by Christ himself, that his resurrection was prophesied throughout the scriptures. 
even as Jesus himself had said that he would rise again on the third day. But John knew that Christ was alive, and the proof would not be long in coming. The suspense had just begun, but the joy was soon to arrive in the person of Christ as he revealed himself to them. As you and I consider our lives in relation to the Savior of mankind, the only one through whom peace with God and eternal life may be gained, consider the examples of Mary of Magdala, Peter, and John. How does your devotion to Christ, the risen and victorious Savior, reveal itself in your life, your action, your service to him? Mary's service was evident. She was in the process of serving Christ by going to do the only thing she knew to do to show her love and devotion to him. Not something that she had been instructed or commanded to do, but instead she knew that this was an appropriate sign a symbol of her affection and devotion to Christ, a symbol of what she owed him as her savior from the power of Satan, preparing his body for its burial as it lay in the dark and damp tomb. For us, as we know, the glorious culmination, the climax of this account, which is that the tomb was empty, not because anybody had removed the body, <clears throat> but because Christ had risen alive from that tomb. It gives us even greater opportunity to serve him and to show our devotion. We do not have the casting out of seven demons to thank him for. We have a great salvation that is very real now. A salvation which is for eternity to thank him for. Mary knew what she was grateful for. A new life out from under the control of the seven demons who had possessed her. What has the Lord saved us from? And what has he saved us to? He has saved us, as indeed he saved Mary, from the very clutches of Satan himself, whose only desire is to carry with us with him to hell for eternity. He saves us from being slaves to Satan's wishes and to our own sinful desires. He has given us and promised to give those who trust in him these great and glorious gifts. How do we respond? <clears throat> With gratitude, accepting his most glorious gift of forgiveness of our sins, freedom from enslavement to sin, Satan, and eternal condemnation? And if we've accepted these magnificent gifts, how do we continue to respond? Are we devoted to following in the footsteps of Christ as Mary the Magdalene did? Or do we seek to make our own paths? To plot our own course? To follow in the tracks we ourselves blaze into the wilderness or jungle? If this is how she served a dead master, how should we serve a risen Savior? Consider the response of Peter and John to this news. Look at them run. And ask yourself a spiritual question. They ran because of their attachment and devotion to Christ to find out what was going on in this tomb where they only expected, had expected to find the dead body of Jesus. 
And yet they were so eager to get there that they had a foot race. How do our feet respond to the commands of Christ to be obedient to him? To follow in his footsteps? Are we eager? Do we race to obedience or do we instead stall and drag? Wait or stop? I believe, speaking for myself, speaking for us, those who know Christ in general, this could probably definitely be truly said throughout all ages of Christians, but I believe that it's so very true that we are lacking in a proper understanding of how great a salvation we have received. And so my frequent prayer, as I pray privately and publicly, is that I and those who trust in Christ would gain a vision to see how terrible sin really is. How very real the slavery to Satan and to sinful, selfish desires truly is. So that by seeing the ugly nature of my sin, of what I have done in disobedience and rebellion against God, that I would understand how great a price Christ truly paid in his death so that I could be forgiven. He who has been forgiven little loves little. He who has been forgiven much loves much. And I fear that the danger is that I might look at my life and say to myself, well, you have only been forgiven little. You haven't done much wrong. And yet, if little love goes with little forgiveness, what a curse to be forgiven little. We would much rather have our eyes open to see As Simon the Pharisee did not see that sin against God is an abomination. Have our eyes open to see that rebellion and disobedience against him has as its only deserved consequence damnation forever, separation from God as a result of warfare against him. I do not want to think of myself righteously as a good man who has been forgiven little. Because the accompanying qualification that goes with thinking of myself as a good man who didn't need much of the blood of Christ applied to me is that I will love him little. I will not be among those who go to the tomb expecting to find a dead body yet so devoted to the person of Jesus that my steps find their way there, even though I am expecting no blessing to myself other than fulfillment of a devotion to him. Instead, I want to find myself so devoted to him because I understand and comprehend the gift that he has given me, the deliverance that he has, that he has given to me, deliverance far greater than deliverance from German Nazi rule, an occupation, deliverance akin to the oppression of seven demons, that I might see my life in that way to understand 
how much he has paid and how little deserving I am. Now, the reality in this is that those of us who are blessed to be brought up in Christian homes, for many of us, it probably could be said that as far as sinners go, we are not notorious sinners. We are not people whose wicked acts have been spread around so that everybody knows and we know I have been as bad as they could possibly be. And yet, receiving the blessing of being brought up in a Christian home, which is a blessing because you know of Christ from your birth, and you hear God's word, and you hear the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, that danger is ever-present, that we might think of ourselves as sinners who don't need much forgiveness. Because we are not notorious. We are not infamous. We have not killed. We have not maimed. We have not done these so many things. And yet, God delivers one and all who trust in Christ from a bondage to Satan, which is very real in the present and lasts for eternity. We need to see the devotion of Mary and John and Peter in their response to an empty tomb so that our response to a risen Savior is compelling, so that our feet run with swiftness, not out of astonishment or interest or wonder, but instead because we know that Christ has risen that he came out of that tomb, and that as a result of the fact that he has risen, we have a mission to fulfill, which is obedience to his desires in order to please him, in order to demonstrate our love to him because of how he has delivered us from bondage. And so I ask again, if this is how they served one they believed to be a dead master, A question for us. If this is how they served a dead master, how ought we to serve a risen Savior? Let us pray. Dear Father, we pray that you would imprint upon our hearts and our lives the understanding, which is very real in the life of Mary the Magdalene, that Jesus had delivered her from bondage to Satan, through seven demons who had possessed her. Cause us to realize that the power of Christ to deliver from the power of Satan, the bondage to him and bondage to sinful, selfish desires, the bondage to sin which is rebellion against you, which brings misery into our hearts and our lives. Help us to understand and to realize your great power and your compassionate love to bring deliverance to our hearts and our lives. And out of the deliverance which you offer to us, and which is a reality through our trust in Christ and seeking your merciful forgiveness of our sins, help us to respond with a devotion that grows in intensity even as we grow in love for you. 
Help us to see clearly the horrible nature of our sins so that we might understand with eyes that see the salvation that you offer to us, the great price that you paid for it, and the glory that is ours through trusting in Christ. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.